This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today, we spend the hour in conversation with Warren Montag, whose article, The Necessity of Taking Back the Streets, appears online in the journal Spectre. Montag argues that the left does not recognize the danger of the organized and armed far right and has been outflanked by the right's strategic advance politically, electorally, and militarily. He sees January 6, 2021, as a big success for the right, and the left's inability to respond to the danger of the right encapsulates the political situation today, the actual balance of power. The right's advance is not just in the streets, but in every level of government, as well as law enforcement and all branches of the military, and includes taking control of states and localities, school boards, and the like. Montag sees historical precedents, both for the organized right's march to power and the left's complacency about the scale of the threat. To stop the right will require more than investigations and prosecutions. It will require understanding the danger the right represents and mass mobilizations to defend democracy. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and I am very pleased to have Warren Montag with us for the first time, I think, on the show. And we're going to be talking about an article that Warren just published online in Spectre, a new journal that is both physical and online. This is on the online version, and it's called The Necessity of Taking Back the Streets. And it's a really important article. And before we do that, let me just introduce Warren. He's a professor of English and Comparative Literature at Occidental College right here in Los Angeles. And he's known mostly for his work on 20th century French theory, especially Althusser and his circle, as well as uh, his studies on the philosopher Spinoza. He's got several books out on them and Adam Smith, and he's the editor of Decollages. I want to welcome you, Warren, to the show and just say that in terms of what you've been writing and that in this article, you argue that much of the left has failed to recognize the danger of the far right, which has tentacles in every Every level of government, including law enforcement, every branch of the military, and that the armed organizations of the extreme right, you assert, march unopposed in cities across America, terrorize elected officials with impunity, assaulted the Capitol on January 6, 2020, and know they are at war and have adapted the, the tactics of European fascism. And then we've just passed, as you know, no one can fail to recognize the one year anniversary of the attempted insurrection of January 6th. Congress and the courts are digging through the evidence, uh, while the anniversary has occasioned a pretty intense media focus with documentaries and discussions, trying to understand, I guess, the meaning and significance for American democracy. And if anything else, it also exposed just how fragile the institutions of American democracy are. You know, there's been widespread recognition by liberals and even by some very prominent anti-Trump Republicans that about the nature of the Republican Party under Trump, it's his party, and that it's a far-right, racist, anti-democratic, proto-fascist, proto-authoritarian party, and a party which aims to stay in power by eliminating the institutions of majority rule. And you go into a lot of this in your article, which we want to discuss, but 
from what I get, I think missing in your view is the active focus of the left on the danger that the far right poses. So let's begin there, Warren, that you argue that the far right's attempted insurrection on January 6th and the left's total inability to respond to it kind of encapsulate the political situation in the United States today, which is you rightly focus as on the balance of power. So can you explain that? Yeah. Well, thank you very much, first of all, for having me and giving me the opportunity to talk. I would say that we could look at the different reactions to January 6th. First of all, I would say I don't consider it an insurrection. I don't consider it uh, an attempted coup exactly. I mean, it's, it's probably very hard to say what the forces involved were thinking would be the outcome. But in general, I, I see it as a kind of propaganda action. In that way, it couldn't possibly be considered a failure. It was a tremendous success for them, a huge success. And I think this is something that's escaped the attention of liberals and people on the left as well. Now, if we, if we just turn to the Democratic Party, and really everybody in the Democratic Party, their reaction is, number one, to exaggerate the possible outcome of that action on the part of the far right and to call it an insurrection. They were floating uh, terms like uh, act of sedition, rebellion, etc., when in fact, I, I don't think that was really, at least from the point of view of the people who organized it, it wasn't really uh, the ultimate goal. But more than that, it's not just that they try to exaggerate for their own purposes the intentions or the danger that it posed to the system. It's also their rea- the way of dealing with what happened, which is to treat it as a legal event, as like a series of crimes that, like all crimes, have to be traced back to specific individuals who are then confronted with evidence that they committed some illegal act. Well, that means that the the people who are being punished, and there are people being punished, some severely, most of them not very severely, but, but the issue is that this approach, which individualizes it, it, it doesn't make it possible to really uh, look at the strategic thinking behind uh, what happened. I mean, even, even what they're talking about today, which is Trump's involvement in sort of every detail of, of what went on or his knowledge, at least, of that. And it could be a criminal conspiracy. That doesn't tell us anything of value about what the far right is actually doing now. It doesn't tell us anything about that. And Trump, in, in certain ways, can't be considered the strategic center of thought uh, guiding this movement. So I think the spectacle that they're putting on, and they, they, they treat it that way, the Democrats, it's a, a kind of you know ongoing uh, revelation very slowly of the various acts that, that took place, everything from breaking windows and defacing things to assaulting police officers, et cetera. I mean, their hope is that this will be so overwhelming, the evidence and the the severity of the crimes will be so overwhelming that people will be horrified and, and they'll want to uh, reject 
the whole Republican Party. And I, I think this is completely wrong. I think what they're doing is creating sort of January 6th fatigue, and they're focusing on that day, those crimes, these people who are, you know, in many cases, most of them, in fact, you know, mentally disturbed, they were used in various ways. And, and this, it's not going to work to the Democrats' benefit, because while they're doing the spectacle, they're arranging the spectacle, the far right is very efficiently and effectively organizing outside of the Capitol, outside of the recognition of the Democratic Party, which I think is, creates a very dangerous situation. So instead of confronting the actual practice of what's going on by the far right, they're engaging in this sort of very meticulous but very legalistic approach to January 6th, which misses the whole point. Now, if we go to the Republican Party, it's quite interesting. What we see with January 6th is this is what was necessary to bring in line all the, the people that had hesitations about Trump, not just Trump, but the whole vision of creating a kind of authoritarian regime that would resist uh, any attempt to vote it out of power. I can talk more about that. I mean, go back to Pence and uh, even Lindsey Graham and the, the rest of them, the old uh, school. These people were not, they were very reluctant to embrace something that was that much of a departure from everything they'd known. I mean, it seemed wrong and it seemed like it would end up in catastrophe or something like that. But in fact, January 6th encouraged them. It pushed them because what they were thinking about was how is the general population, even more their own base, going to react? Aren't they going to be demoralized when they saw what happened on the 6th? And aren't they going to turn away from Trump once they understand that he's proposing an authoritarian regime that you can't even vote out of power? And the answer was that for, for their base, the 6th was an enormously energizing spectacle. What they saw was not a defeat, and, you know, you can understand why. I mean, they like 10,000 people, whatever, who were involved in the, the assault on the Capitol building, they were driven out or arrested or, you know, defeated by some superior power of the state or something like that. They walked away. They strolled away. And they, they went down to their hotels and they celebrated. And this is not a, a defeat. This is they can do what they want, and and most of them will get away with it. I want to, yeah, I want to come in on that too because yeah. there's a couple of things you know because you're suggesting so much. And first of all, just to say, I think that there's been a slow rolling realization about what that represented. Mm -hmm. And right from the outset, you know, the Democrats wanted to use the occasion to again impeach and tarnish Trump's reputation. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, the slow rolling recognition was that the weakness of the institutions. And even now you're seeing moves to try to perhaps reform the electoral certification process, because that's what they were trying to do that day was to prevent Pence from certifying the Electoral College vote. And no one before had ever imagined that that could be done. Um, but I think one thing, one of the narratives that came out in the beginning that, you know, has to be 
at least unpacked a little, and we, we can do it a little later, is that it was just this spontaneous, you know, love affair for Trump, but there were other forces within, you know, that drove it in a certain direction. And I think that, you know, we should say from the outset that it wasn't spontaneous. Yeah. It was organized. Well, it was funded right. as well. And then so it'd be very interesting to do that. So, you know, and I want to move forward a little bit because you say in talking about the left refusing to acknowledge the continuing advance of the far right, or at least perhaps before this anniversary, at every level of the government. And that includes, as I said in the introduction, in the police and the military. Um, and just as importantly, the ability, and this is a quote from you, of most of the most extreme organizations to march unopposed in the nation's major cities and terrorize elected Officials with impunity, that's what you were just saying. Now, walk away, feel fine. They were confident. They were very confident, even like others have said, well, what kind of fascist forces stop and take selfies? And I would say very confident ones, you know, when they they were inside. But you further clarify all of this by referring to their drive to take over state and local governments. So this is what I think we should move to unpack a little bit for us. And then you're to get a bigger and better understanding of the advance of the far right. And you started, I guess, by talking talking about the ambivalence of leading Republicans, you know, first about whether or not, I guess the slow realization that, yeah, this really is Trump's party. So they're either going to like it or leave it. Yeah. I think, I think it's, it's Trump's party. I mean, you know, we don't know what kind of shape Trump is going to be in a couple more years, but I think that more importantly than Trump, even though Trump as a figure is extremely important as a mobilizing factor, I think the realization is really about the the kind of changes or the, the kind of strategy that will allow them as a minority party to gain the presidency and make it impossible for them to be voted out of not impossible, but very, very difficult. And so I think their strategy is clearly aimed at precisely that, that uh, goal. So how can they make certain They're coming to power and retaining that power, even in the face of the fact that they don't have the majority uh, support. And of course, this reveals, uh, you said something about this, the tremendous potential for authoritarian rule or the emergence of an authoritarian regime in the very structure of our political system. I mean, obviously, the Electoral College is a total disaster, uh, an anti-democratic, which will become only more so as time goes on. But, okay, so they they have, you know, very elaborately worked out strategy for sort of redesigning the political landscape in a way that allows state legislatures to be the ultimate determinant of electoral college votes. And in that way, they, they can have a lock on the outcome of an election. And it's a very, it's an audacious uh, strategy because nobody, I mean, people really hadn't thought of something like that before, but there's enough wiggle room. We can't say that they would succeed in doing that, but simply mounting an all out effort to do that will produce consequences that we can't predict. They can't predict. And, you know, as these, um, the three generals who, uh, publish a letter in the, the Washington Post in mid-December, as they said, the effect of, of, of a sort of stalled, inconclusive election where you have, you know, big factions of the population on either side 
I mean, this is going to lead, this could be, it doesn't have to be, I'm not saying it will be, but it could lead to tremendous violence. I'm not saying civil war, but I mean, it opens the way to uh, violence on many different levels and invites uh, something very, very bad. So they figured out how to at least get to the point where they can mount a credible challenge uh, and it'll be the electoral college versus the popular vote. And it's ambiguous enough from a legal point of view that it can't easily be resolved. And of course, if it goes to the Supreme Court, uh, I wouldn't uh, put my money on the Supreme Court coming up. Well, we can see what they're doing right now with vaccine mandates. Yes, exactly. Just, you know, or almost any issues. And, you know, of course, in laying the groundwork for this, maybe it wasn't intentional exactly for this, but we've seen, you know, the last four years of just relentless stacking of the courts, not yeah. just the Supreme Court. Well, and they will, you know, even though they're against Biden's power to impose this terrible, in their eyes, mandate, and of course, Gorsuch doesn't know the difference between flu and COVID, but it's that as soon as it's a question of, uh, you know, someone like Trump, you, you can bet that they're going to uh, support him and uphold his, uh, his interests. So I think that's a very frightening uh, prospect. And that doesn't mean the show, you know, the whole thing would be resolved or over, but it, it means there'd be, there's a, a high potential for some serious conflict. And what the generals are pointing to is the fact that, which, which I think is, should be frightening to all of us, that the army is divided that there's already precedent now because of the Brigadier General of the National Guard in Oklahoma to refuse a direct order from the person who's supposed to be the commander-in-chief. And, you know, what, what's the consequence for him? I mean, he said, just reading this, he said, well, you know, if I get fired or whatever, okay. But, but there's no consequence for him. I mean, even the generals who were writing this weren't even proposing consequences for him. And there are no consequences for people organizing white supremacist uh, reading groups and things like that in the, in the, yeah. well, the, the army and the Marines particularly. Uh, but, okay, so there, there's that. And then, you know, even their own uh, prescription, like how do you fix this? Because they, they admit that even though right after January 6th, uh, there, there was an attempt to stop it, to weed out uh, white supremacy, it, it obviously failed or never took place. And their answer to this is, 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 is kind of mind-boggling. It's a civics course. That's their answer. <laughs> and I think it's a one-day civics course and it, where, where they'll be instructed as to the proper chain of command. Uh, I'm sorry, but, you know, that's, I mean, it's such a, a non-response that you have to wonder where their allegiance lies here. But anyway, so, you know, I, I think that's that's an example of a worsening situation that, that because it's the armed forces has potentially enormous consequences and nobody is doing anything about it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not in favor of, you know, Biden exercising his power or something, but I mean, why is no one taking this seriously as a danger? Because the far right is working very hard to assemble its forces. And the generals were, they were fairly frank about the whole thing. It comes down to, they have access to weapons. And, you know, you don't necessarily want that. 
And, you know, but this is what the, the Democrats could be looking at instead of, you know, who broke a window in the Capitol or something. You know, actually, I'm seeing like I watched an interview with William Cohen, a liberal Republican, and he was on Amanpour a couple of days ago. And he actually stated all of this outright, that this is a fascist threat. And, you know, not just mentioning the supremacy of the political over the military in American tradition, right, but in every other way about the Republican Party, it was pretty it was a pretty far uh, reaching analysis. And I had to think about who it was coming from, mm-hmm. you know, and of course, he has no voice. He's he's X, but at least he's talking about it. But in going on about what you are, uh, Warren, you talk about one of the most strategic turns of the far right is to ignore legality, which you just said, and embrace violence in support of white supremacy, which is a classical fascist standpoint. I'd love Mm -hmm. it for you to develop this for our listeners. Sure. Yeah. I mean, let let me go into the the question of violence because it's, you know, they're not taking their their AR-15s and firing into crowds or something like that. It's not at that level. What they're doing, I mean, we can go through the sort of steps that they've taken. They initially launch an, an assault, words mainly, and uh, intimidation, and then it graduates to threats of elected officials, elected or appointed officials who are in charge of the election infrastructure. Okay. And it's a relentless campaign where people, at least I think it's one out of five election officials have been the target of death threats, et cetera. And, and I, I, I've talked to other people. This is now extended even to candidates for office who are Democrats, not incumbents. But it's, I mean, some incumbents, but really people who uh, are just stepping up to fill a, a spot. And they are threatened with death. Their families are threatened. Their houses and cars are vandalized. And it's a low-level campaign. I'm not saying, you know, someone points a gun at them or something. But this is enough. It doesn't take a whole lot. You, you, what they're faced with is saying, Am I, do I want to endanger my family to do this? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think these people are, you know, exactly sane, the far-right people. I mean, they certainly don't project sanity. They project crazy. So you know, people are afraid and people are resigning in droves. And this is exactly what the far right wants. They want everybody to resign, open up these places. If the Republicans can appoint uh, people, so much the better. But even in the case of an election, they're going to disrupt every event that the uh, Democratic candidate puts on. They're going to threaten them and even more. This is important, too. In a number of states, Colorado, for example, Arizona, Montana, Oregon, Washington, there is direct harassment of Democratic voters. And what's happening now is that there's some uh, grouping that it's mainly militia people, I think, from the 3% militia who go around and they, they have, I guess, on public record, the list of Democrats and where they live. And they go and knock on their door with a, with a group of people. And the leader of this, I think in Colorado, was the former president of Bikers for Trump. So you can imagine what crowd he brings to the door, right? And it, I mean, that's exactly what it is. It's an attempted at intimidation. And it's, it's a warning that 
you know, if anything is wrong with your information or something like that, you know, there are going to be very serious, they're implying legal consequences, but this is enough to make people withdraw from politics altogether and not vote or even go to the polling place. And what we saw even in Los Angeles is that at a local uh, voting place, Proud Boys walked into the middle of the voting area, yelling and screaming without a mask. They were, you know, supposedly anti-mask, screaming about Biden and all, all kinds of things. And what they pushed people, they screamed at people, they overturned tables and things like that. And the police were called. They didn't show up for an hour. And when they showed up, nothing happened to any of those people. And this is Los Angeles. I'm not even talking about, you know, <laughs> Eastern Oregon or something. But this is typical. And this is why the uh, mobilization within law enforcement is critical. This constitutional sheriff's movement, mm-hmm. which now has 300 uh, sheriffs officially, and of course many sheriffs and others are, don't want to declare that they're members because I mean, in their areas it could cause them trouble. And so these are people who say, I'm not going to enforce X law or, you know, I'm not going to enforce the the law if those people commit the crime. And that's what we see. People engage in illegal actions all the time because death threats, as we all know, you can't go around and threaten somebody. You're going to kill them if they don't do X. And you can't make death threats. You can't assault people. You can't, I mean, there are many, many laws that are broken regularly by this movement, and nobody holds them to account. They, they've been given carte blanche to do whatever they want. I mean, it's short, what are can't. the historical precedents of this? Because you say in your article that, you know, the far right knows it's at war <laughs> and has successfully adapted the tactics of European yeah. fascism before it came to power in both Italy and Germany to its campaigns at the local level. Or right. the state level. So exactly know. that. I think that what, and I know that some of the people in bar, I mean, some of the people in the far right are probably incapable of doing that kind of research or whatever. Yeah. But some have looked very carefully at the Italian case, the German case as well. But in the Italian case, the use of these fascist squads, mm-hmm. uh, there was a left counterpoint to that later, to go into neighborhoods. Uh, break up meetings, even social gatherings, to uh, if people were selling uh, Lunita or something, the communist newspaper, they would attack them and, you know, and nothing ever happened because the police were uh, generally integrated. This is before Mussolini came to power. The police were sympathetic, if not, you know, a part of the, the fascist movement. And to withdraw the protection of law for people under those circumstances and allow violence to be used against them is a typical fascist act. It's not just that the state acts, which is very important. And there's some confusion about this. It's not just about the state. There are cases in which the state withdraws from a a certain area and allows these non-state forces organized by the party or by the fascist movement to go in and do this work for them. And it's, it's obviously very efficient and there's no legal complication for the, the state, et cetera. And that's the way it works. And it's used extensively. Now, even the law itself, if I can 
make a bit of a segue. What's striking about the uh, recent legislation in the various states against demonstrations, it's a big, uh, 31 states have passed laws in some way abridging rights of demonstrators, but more importantly, uh, increasing the uh, penalties for the slightest vaguely defining fractions. If you block traffic, you can go to prison if you're in Florida, right? If you block the sidewalk, you can go to prison. If you damage property for something more than $200 of value, which, you know, you bump into something, it's $200, you go to, you go to prison for five years. And somebody was just sentenced for, to three years in prison in Florida for like some minor uh, property damage. And so that's very serious. But the other thing, which we should never underestimate, is the indemnification or immunity granted to people who drive their cars into a demonstration. Well, right. I mean, this is now, I counted six states. It's on the agenda in many other states to give people the right to attack the demonstration with a car. And they are immunized no matter how many people they kill. Mm. And this is by law now. Okay. So this, this is not a joke. No, and it, like, this is opening the gates to attacks, assaults on the left and communities of color. I mean, it's, it's like an invitation to come and attack them. So, Warren, like the immediate conclusion is that to fight back, and you, you state this throughout in your article, is that we need at minimum to an analysis and an understanding, yeah. you know, of the authoritarian and white supremacist coalition that emerged, you know, around the Trump campaign and then in support of his administration's offensive against immigrants, workers, women, African-Americans. And you've been sort of doing all of this, but I'd like to bring it to some more clarification than we can go on about what the left should be doing. Sure. But what is your understanding then of the social forces making up the far right? What are they actually trying to accomplish? They, you know, MAGA, take back the country. What does it mean? Does Trump continually said, if you don't elect me, you'll lose your country? Mm-hmm. How do you think that's understood? Well, I think, you know, the evidence, which is not complete, but the evidence from January 6th is that these are people not from rural areas that are primarily white, but from suburban, you know, use that term very loosely, suburban areas that are increasingly non-white, probably Latino in many cases. And in many cases, blue, you know, voted Democratic. These were small business owners, not young people. But, yeah. so, so these are, you know, the average age is 40, mm-hmm. uh, the, the people arrested. And these are people who are, they're not working class, the, most of them. I mean, if, unless you... Sort of classical petty bourgeoisie, as we yes, said, I mean, that, shopkeepers. Exactly. You know? And, and you can imagine the attraction that Trump has for them in some some way, which is, you know, you're, you'll be free, you won't have all this regulation, you don't have to pay your workers a high wage, you don't have to have insurance, etc. And it's that. It's also, but I think the, the cultural aspect, is, we can't neglect that. I think the, one of the interesting phenomena going on is the phenomenon of the Karens, right? And it's not just the Karens are not simply, I, I don't think it's an apolitical thing, but I think it's very political. The Karens are not simply about, it is about mass and that sort of thing, but it's also, and it's not just women, it's mainly women, but protest against 
For example, speaking a foreign language in a public place. There are many, many examples of that. And why are you speaking this language? Is you're in America, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And that, and why are you here? I mean, that's the other, the race, the typical racist response. Why is a black man in my apartment building or something like that? And what they're trying to do is recapture this uh, probably fantasy, homogeneously white American community where they feel comfortable because they're not comfortable hearing a foreign language, seeing a foreign language written, especially if it's in another alphabet. They're not comfortable having to mingle with all these different people. I mean, this is a a disruption of the kind of rituals and customs of their daily life, and they don't like it. And they feel like they're being pushed out. And of course, this is overdetermined by you know, the the after effects of the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, when these people especially were hard hit, they continued to be hard hit. The pandemic was very hard for them, is very hard. And so it's a combination of factors, but it it reinforces racism, uh, some kind of clinging to the market fantasy, because I think one of the effects of their anti-mask, anti-vaccine Position. I mean, the anti-vaccine thing is also a way of broadening their base, which sounds ridiculous, but it's true, because they were they managed to pull in a whole lot of anti-vaxxers who probably were, you know, sort of like ex-hippie. Exactly. Types, yeah. You know, who wouldn't have been caught dead near, a, you know, some right. kind of a militia person. And so they brought them into the far right. And at the same time, these have consequences for the labor movement, as I talked about a little bit, that it has consequences for uh, hospitals, for healthcare, because what, what they're going to claim coming out of this is that the whole thing is a fraud. Mm-hmm. All the demands for healthcare is like they're just sucking up all my tax dollars. And, on, and on, enriching pharma and all of the rest yes, of it. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Which, you know, I'm not defending. I mean, that's another story. The, this is, that, you know, this is really interesting, uh, Warren Montague, because the, you also go into the whole strategy. We saw it work out very well for the far right in Virginia in the race for governor, where they successfully use the issue of what is being taught in the schools. And you do talk about that. And a lot of people want to just dismiss that. But it seems like from what I'm getting from your conversation, Warren, is that you're seeing this cohere in a much more strategic way. And with like tentacles is the right sort of analogy of tentacles in all these different areas in local elections and local contests that attack the rights of teachers to teach. (laughs) And maybe you could talk a little bit about it. So, you know, for example, the way that the attack on education is, you know, around something that doesn't exist, the teaching of critical race theory in schools. Yes. I mean, it's true that critical race theory is is not going to be taught in elementary schools. The law school thing. (laughs) Yes. I mean, it's, it's a very, you know, in a technical sense, it's very specialized, but, but, they don't really mean critical race theory. They don't know anything about it. What they mean is race or racism or the fact that, I mean, what, what they're trying to do, which is it's kind of startling at this point in history, is to erase all the facts that have come up around slavery, Reconstruction period, the Jim Crow, all of this, which has recently been the object of a lot of scholarship, but also popular knowledge, and they want it all to go away. They want to bury it. 
and they want to say this is false. You know, where this is like trying to make trouble where there isn't any, and it was never that bad, and slavery was you know not that big of a deal, and blah blah blah. And you see uh, a lot of this, and I, I think that's the ideological purpose is to diffuse any idea that there's uh, injustice in the the U.S. uh, past or something like that, which would be very difficult to do. And I mean, it's, it's becoming each, each day it becomes more extreme. It extends to more and more uh, things about native Americans, about, about, you know, to to talk about massacres that happened. Uh, So you're not supposed to do that. It's not true. Why do you bring these things up? And so it's an attempt to re redefine history in a certain way to re to rewrite history to leave out anything that calls into question the justice and the fairness of the US and it's seen as some attack on their integrity which again I, I think it shows the the racial element there I mean you, what, what we're seeing is a without necessarily saying it although they're saying it more and more it's like a white identity movement. Right. And they don't want to deal with what happened to black people or anybody else. And, and there's something really, I mean, it's not the only thing, but there's a corrosive kind of relativism uh, that, you know, everybody suffered, everybody's had problems. There are two sides to everything, two sides of slavery, you know, at the extreme, two sides to the Holocaust, which I don't you know, no, did it happen or not happen? Who knows? But I mean, the success of that counterattack, you know, coming on the heels of Black Lives Matter and all that, it's unbelievable. I mean, I, I don't even, I don't understand how they've been able to succeed. I mean, and the answer is it's not on the force of their ideas; it's on their use of force in various ways. And well, let's I, go there. I yeah. mean, because we have about, you know, I want to get into the counter, sort yeah, of what, yes, yes. what needs to be done. Yeah. And I think this is, you know, alarming as it well should be. But, you know, you spend a lot of time in your article talking about and the very title of the article that is in uh, Spectre Online is called The Necessity of Taking Back the Streets. Mm-hmm. And you talk a lot about the essentially non-response or neglect of most, most of the left in terms of even mm-hmm. recognizing how dangerous this is, you know, and that stopping the right requires more than investigations and prosecutions. Mm-hmm. It requires, you know, mass mobilization in defense of, of democracy, literally, mm-hmm. and the end to complacency about the scale of this threat. I think that's sort of the sort of conclusion that you draw. But I'd like to also once again state that this didn't come out of a vacuum, that from the crisis of 2008 through like the beginning of the Arab Spring and Occupy and then the Sanders and Corbyn candidacies and not just here, but also, you know, in other places that the left has been on the ascendancy and that it kind of culminated worldwide in 2019 in these mass revolts that touched almost every country. Mm. And then the pandemic put a big old, you know, stopper on it, but not completely because we did see uh, the emergence here of the Black Lives Matter gigantic movement in response to the killing of George Floyd, but then all the other killings as well. And so there is this left, but it's Mm. not specifically targeted to that. And and I think the, the point of your article is that the right is winning. And you look at the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict as a kind of marker mm-hmm. in a way. So maybe I could just, you know, leave it there and ask you to say, to talk about what you think needs to be done and what has not been done or recognized. 
Yeah. Do you want me to talk about the models so that we could look at from the past or just? Well, sure. Okay. I mean, well, uh, I think what the left has to do, and, and I think I understand why many people on the left were very dismissive of January 6th. It was a freak show and a bunch of uh, clowns and all this. But I, I think part of that is, uh, especially now, the task is enormous. <laughs> and we are, we as on the left, are, are very ill-prepared to take on any of this. And I mean, from all sorts of different levels. And that's why I insisted on, when I, when I say get knowledge, we have to develop a knowledge of these. I don't mean, you know, what are their ideas or how do they explain? We probably know enough about that. What we need to know is how do they operate? What is their strategy for intimidating, frightening people, getting them to do what they want them to do, which is often just shut up and let me, uh, uh, tell you what what needs to be done, and and we we need to figure out how they operate, where they they choose certain places, where are they strong, where are they not strong, uh, how much are they engaged in acts of intimidation and violence, which means aren't there people in those areas, and there are, who don't like the far right, who go and are disgusted, and even there even have been as far as I can see, spontaneous mobilizations by, you know, quote unquote, normal people, you know, to go and tell them to shut up and, you know, that we have business to do and it's not to you. And, you know, many of the people who show up at these meetings are not even from the school or the area or whatever. And so I, I think to, to investigate how they operate, how they make their choices, and then what sort of opposition is already there and, and could be maybe mobilized if, if they had support and that sort of thing. I think that's very important, but we need to know what they do and how they do it. And it, it's not a study of their ideas, it's a study of their practice. And, mm. uh, you know, I don't think this isn't the way that the left here thinks, which is why I think looking at the history of somewhat similar moments in the United States, also in Europe as well, is very useful. I mean, if you if you look at, you know, for example, one of the most famous movements is the British SWP from 77 to 82, the Anti-Nazi League. Mm-hmm. And they mobilized a, a huge movement, but, but also a very effective movement. It was both a, a mass movement and also a targeted sort of uh, activist practice to defeat a, a very powerful fascist movement. And, and I think th- that's an interesting example. There's a French example, not exactly the same, but the, the planning that went into it, 72, 73 in Paris, another big success. And so I think we, we could look at those uh, examples. They're not going to be, we're, we can't copy them, but I think there are elements that are, could be very useful, especially if you get into the day-to-day operation of what they did would be very interesting. But the other thing that I, I want to say is we have our own recent examples that we don't pay much attention to, which is Berkeley, you know, from like uh, 2016 to, I don't know, 2019. And I, I don't consider that to be uh, some sort of, a total failure or whatever. I mean, it wasn't a failure ultimately. And, you know, to look at that experience, which includes Antifa, right. which I don't see as Satan or something like that. 
and to look at what they did and what worked and what didn't work. And I think there are there are people that I'm, I'm thinking of trying to do interviews with people to get a sense of exactly their day to day work because they did a lot of intelligence gathering. And they, they monitored the activities of the uh, adversary in a way that I think was very, very uh, sophisticated and interesting. You're talking about the way to stop them in the streets, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, this is also much larger, as you laid out earlier, Warren, in terms of, you know, tentacles in the military and in the police yeah. and especially taking over local and state, you know, electoral positions, as well as, you know, let's say it, the whole Republican Party. So it is gigantic and the left is yes. smaller. But, you know, I mean, I can't assume that you are a strategist, but I want to get more of your ideas about what hasn't been taken on and what should be taken on. Yeah, I think I think one of the most important things that, that could be done, especially now, and, and I think it is possible, is why not try to organize in the military? I mean, this has been done in the past. It was done, you know, even during the Vietnam War by various groups. Yep. And I don't want to go into details. but no, I'll just say something before you do. I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt. But one of my favorite slogans from Trotsky was that, you know, a revolution is a fight for the army. And yes. the side that gets the army wins. You know, and if you got the army on your side, there won't be violence. <laughs> you won't be and not even get the army on your side, but have enough weight in the army that you can prevent the others from going to, to war. And, and I think there are people who are part of the left who are in the military, including even in the Marines. I happen to know that. And, uh, OK, I think there is a possibility of or but, but I mean, that's not on anybody's mind. I mean, it's not even considered. It's not even something that people are thinking about, but I, that's what we have to do. And, you know, okay, DSA is not, I don't want to get into DSA particularly, but it's big enough. It's the largest have, organization. It's big. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, compared to virtually anything else, it's big. And you, you know, if you start with a nucleus, you can do a lot inside the military. And if the far right can do it, so can, you know, the left. And I think that would be extremely important to do that. You can't not do that. I mean, if the threat is what it seems to be, uh, you, you have to organize effectively against it. You can't, it's not going to go away because it's inconvenient. You know, I'd rather be doing union work than that or whatever, you know, solidarity work. But you don't have that luxury. You have to deal with the reality. But there's a lot to that, Warren, but it's I think mainly in your article you show in case after case the way the left has been outflanked by the right. Yeah. And that in this sense that the and you put it in terms of strategic advance. Mm-hmm. You're talking here about one thing that the left could be doing, you know, mm-hmm. but we also have like a climate emergency. We have so mm-hmm. many different topics to take on and also the other basic defense of democratic institutions, right. you know, which will be up to the left to take on. <laughs> So see, that's the point. There's no one else who's going to do it. Exactly. The Democratic Party is absolutely you. I'm on this question. It's useless. It's it's a distraction from what needs to be done. And I think that yes, but the left it doesn't have to be only DSA, but larger group needs to be able to think strategically about everything. And I don't think it's impossible. I mean, people do it and have done it. But it's not the habit or the custom or the culture of the U.S. left, because it's been so marginal for such a long time. 
They've never had to do that. And now what, I, what I'm trying to argue is you have to do it because there's no one else who's going to do it. And you start with uh, what you can do, which I, I actually think is, is not uh, so negligible. You can't do everything, but I think you can certainly do, you know, have people in the movements that you're talking about and, and to integrate those movements into at least a conception of strategy. And I think that's the, it's the only way forward. And I, I'd, be, I'm, I'd be frightened to think of, you know, people just, uh, I mean, the, the tendency now is to say, I don't want to deal with it. I want to ask you, and it, it sort of takes us back a little bit, but in your article, you kind of say that another reason that the inaction of the left or the inability of the left to recognize how dangerous the situation has been is that that they have essentially ceded the streets to the right. And that, and you said that they abandoned the streets in the face of the violent tactics of the Proud Boys, the three percenters and all of the, and the militia, uh, Oath Keepers. And, and, and you talk a lot about what happened in Kenosha and with Kyle Rittenhouse mm-hmm. as a kind of marker. Maybe you could just explain that a little bit in terms of like how dangerous this is. Well, I think, I mean, there, it's different in different places. And obviously in Wisconsin, you're able to bring a, a loaded AR-15 rifle to a demonstration and you're allowed to provoke violence because if somebody walks into a demonstration with an AR-15, uh, people are going to want to disarm that person because, because they think he's a psycho, and usually they are psychos. And that w- he then kills everyone who tries to disarm him. He, he does so with impunity. I mean, that's the precedent. So that's extremely dangerous. And the question of, I can't even, I don't even want to get into it at this point, but the, the left is not, not in a position to go head to head with armed struggle or something like that. That's not even on the agenda. It's not consideration, but it's something that has to be taken into account. And we, we have to think of, it's not impossible to weaken the far right and to make it harder for them. And we have to think about ways of doing that. And then, but there are plenty of places where you can't carry an AR-15 into a demonstration like California, LA. And even in LA, I mean, it was something that was unthinkable just a few years ago. The Proud Boys can march anywhere in downtown Los Angeles, which is not their, that's not their domain. Let's put it that way. And they do so with impunity and they go around attacking people. And nothing happens because the police are their friends and the people they're attacking, the police don't like them anyway. And this happens on a, you know, not every day, but Couple, every couple months, and they, they're bust in from Bakersfield, of all places. But, you know, I, I think that there, there is violence, they're using violence, and we have to acknowledge that, think about it, and think about how to counteract that. And, you know, part of it is numbers, but there may be other things. And we, we you can't turn, it's reality, and you have to deal with the reality. That's my I want to ask you just, I guess, finally, because we don't have a lot. We only have a few minutes left. But let's say that, you know, that there is success in in scaring off the far right armed militia groups, which is what you're talking about. How do you see that in terms of the forward advance of the uh, authoritarian agenda of the Republican Party? Well, I think it would it would be if you could push them back, not, not just on the, you know, for demonstrations on the street, if you could push them back at the, the local level, of their attacks on hospitals, boards of health, boards of education, electoral boards, 
that if you can push them back and you can only do that if you involve other people beyond the left in, in an effort, you mobilize them, then you're going to be pushing them on every, they're going to, they'll become demoralized. People will drop out. They will begin to factionalize because they, they won't know which way to go. And they're unified because they're so powerful right now. And as soon as that power is checked, you're going to see, I mean, th these people are made for division. I mean, if they're not <laughs> in some sort of action, they're about ready to kill each other most of the time. I mean, you saw this at Char after Charlottesville, you know, which, which ended up being a complete disaster for them as they recovered. But uh, they turned on each other. It was, it was uh, incredible. And, and I think you'll see that even more. But it requires it, stopping them, you know, pushing back. And there's no pushback now. The field is open. Let me finally ask you, Warren Montag, if you have any hope about, let's say, the renewed strike wave, small as it is in Striketober, and the incredible, let's say, militancy and even the big quit in response to labor conditions that we're seeing the beginnings of a, of a labor movement, not quite where we were in the 30s. But do you see that as a beacon of hope, you know, yeah. against... No, I, not only is it a beacon of hope, I, but I think in order to succeed, you're going to have to deal with this threat. You can't ignore the far right as if they're just going to stand by when the teachers go on strike or, or when there's some sort of move. They're not going to stand by. They're going to be on the, the Board of Education. They're going to be out there screaming at the teachers, attacking them, et cetera. And what are you going to do? I mean, it, it, not to confront that is allowing them to, they're going to uh, try everything they can to stop the strike and to prevent a strike from ever. I mean, they want surveillance of uh, teachers and all this. I mean, and, and, you know, I think people now, for example, should be supporting the teachers asking for, against uh, having to do in-person uh, teaching. And, you know, there is so many frontline workers during the pandemic who tried to organize and they got no... There was very little uh, action in solidarity with them. And I think those are the kinds of opportunities we can't miss. And, and I think a strike wave would be fantastic. And I think, of course, it, it would have a very good impact on everything. But it's going to require some, you know, sort of extra work in the community and to push back these forces because they're going to be used against strikes, I guarantee, especially public sector type strikes. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to end it there. And I want to thank you so much, Warren Montag. I think, you know, in many ways, I like to say we go beneath the surface and we went deeper, but we still are always scratching the surface because there's just there's so many levels here to explore. So I look forward to you know what more you write on this. I'd like to point the listeners to the article on uh, Inspector, that's S-P-E-C. T-R-E online and it's called The Necessity of Taking Back the Streets and that's uh, the essentially the arguments that we've been discussing right here that uh, Warren has cogently written in this article. He's a professor of English uh, and comparative literature at Occidental College and um, has written a whole bunch of books on Spinoza, Althusser, Adam Smith and everything else. And I just want to thank you so much for being with us today, Warren. Thank you very much, Susie. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.